Hello and welcome back to our Hints and Tips for Complex Oncology Conversations. Um, I'm delighted to be joined once again by Dan and Claire. So we're uh, we're making progress through our sort of plan of six podcasts in total. Um, and this uh, podcast is entitled The Standard Clarkin and we will explain more as we go on. So uh, if we cast our minds back to the last podcast, we were uh, presented with a patient who was in clinic and um, was starting to show signs of um, deterioration, coming to the end of their treatment journey in terms of their oncological therapy. And we pick the scenario up now where that same person has um, had to attend the oncology uh, assessment unit because they have started to feel less well. In the last seven days, had more symptoms, um, felt more fatigued and had more pain for which her pain relief hasn't been uh, particularly effective. So we're now in a situation where the patient's global clinical status has changed and they have attended in a non-elective fashion, which I think is often the beginning of recognising that somebody's status is changing, particularly if there's somebody who hasn't been seen um, in the acute setting, whether that be an oncology assessment unit or uh, an emergency department or uh, a, an acute medical assessment unit. Uh, if they haven't been seen in that setting uh, and it's not something that's particularly relevant to them up to now, the fact that they are now being reviewed in that environment suggests that there is in fact a change in their status. And that might stimulate us to think about the next stage of discussion in terms of where people are up to, where they're up to in their journey and their thinking, and just reflecting on what we thought about in the last couple of podcasts, where they are in terms of their understanding of their cancer, and also whether they've started thinking about any advanced care plan of any kind. So, over to you, Dan, to talk to a little <laughs> bit more about what we think when we're, when we're sort of faced with this situation when we've got a, a new patient coming into the assessment unit and we have to sort of talk to them acutely obviously we're going to take it as read that we've done the sort of medical discussion in terms of why they've come in we've worked them up from a anemia pain relief perspective and we're now focusing on the opportunity that that presentation gives us in terms of a new and slightly different conversation so i know the reason you've come to me and this is because you mock me by calling this session a Stan Clarking. <laughs> Very um, important to distinguish that <laughs> it is not mocking. Um, it is more about the fact that um, I think this is not a standard apology. <laughs> But it is, it is very much this questions you ask when somebody is clocked in in the hospice. Yeah. And actually, maybe um, some of this is about introducing some of those things into our, into our practice. oncology practice as a standard thing, because then it becomes easy and we do it for everyone. Yeah. So. so because I work in palliative care, I trained in hospices, as you say. So actually, the idea that you would ask somebody at the point of admission, what? actions you would want that they would want you to take if they were to become unwell what their thoughts were about advanced care planning what their thoughts were around what if things get worse from a cancer point of view including end-of-life care wishes actually that is pretty routine in mm. terms of clerking somebody in in a hospice so when we started doing this course and and trying to teach junior colleagues what kind of communication to have with people when they come into hospital 
I refer to this process as just a standard clerking. Why did why did we just teach them how to do a standard clerking? And then went through the list of things that I thought was a standard clerking, whilst Anna gazed at me with complete <laughs> disbelief. <laughs> so the title of this session, the standard clerking, is tongue in cheek, <laughs> I think. Yeah. But I think it's important to sort of touch on a couple of the areas, as Anna pointed out, that we can talk about with people. And the reason for that is if you are clerking somebody who's a new admission, who's new to you, whose situation has changed and they're becoming more unwell, you have the opportunity to be somebody outside who they've met before, but also somebody who has a forgivable place of ignorance. You don't know that person. You don't know what conversations have been had. You don't know what they want to talk about. So you can very innocently ask questions that other people can't get away with if they know the patient. Yeah. So you can ask things like, oh, have you ever discussed advanced care planning? And you can ask it just like that from a place of innocence. And people may say, oh, what's that? People may say, oh, no, I haven't. And some people will say yes. And you can begin a conversation about that. You can ask questions like, what can we talk about? You know, what should we do if things get worse from this point? Now, usually that comes after a conversation with that person about what you're worried about and what you're hoping for from this admission and what may happen. But it's not unreasonable to float the idea that some people, when they come into hospital, get worse. And if that patient becomes worse, what should you do? Now, my typical way of phrasing this when I'm seeing people on the acute admissions unit is, what should we do if things get worse? And we should consider if that thing is something that could be fixed or something that can't be fixed. And the example I give for something that can be fixed is like a chest infection. And I will say to people, look, we will treat you and we will treat you with antibiotics and fluids and oxygen, all the things that we can do on the ward, unless you don't want us to. But if that's not enough and if that doesn't work, we've then got to consider what we do. Now, it may be that that person is somebody that I think is suitable for escalation to level two or three care. And in that instance, I'll say to the patient, would you like me to discuss your situation with an intensive care colleague to see if your care might be escalated. Some people don't want that because it means moving to one of the neighbouring hospitals. Some people don't want to go to ITU and that's fine, but it gives them the option of opting out. If, of course, that's not an option because it's simply not appropriate, I will say to people, you know, actually, if this treatment doesn't work, there wouldn't be anything more we can do to treat your infection. And then we find ourselves in the second scenario, whereby you are getting worse from something that can't be fixed and getting more unwell from the cancer is an example of that. And my question to patients having said that is, what are your wishes or thoughts if we find ourselves in a situation where you are getting worse and we can't fix it? Do you want to stay in hospital? Do you want to be somewhere else? Are there things that you have planned for in terms of advanced care planning wishes. So I will always ask people about their advanced care plans in this yeah. bit of the conversation. And what would your priorities be 
if you are becoming more unwell from something that can't be fixed. Now, it may be that some people will say to me, oh, they want to be at home or they want their family to be brought over to see them. Some people want the dog in. Some people don't want to talk about it at all. And that's fine. But it's getting as much information as I can from that position of innocence and ignorance the first time I meet the patient. Some people that are open to discussing what we do in that situation, I'll push it a step further and I'll say, well, if you deteriorate from something that can't be fixed and the priority is comfort and getting you home and supporting your family or whatever it is that person's told me, then our focus is going to be on achieving those things for you. But I don't think that things that would not help are going to be useful to you. And I talk about resuscitation in that context. If your heart stops at the end of all of this, there wouldn't be anything that we could do to make your heart start beating again. And it wouldn't fit with what you've told me is important in terms of getting you home, making you comfortable, getting your family around. Because actually, if you want that kind of aggressive treatment, it would require you being admitted back to hospital. And actually, if we're in a situation where that has no chance of success, then it's not something that's on offer because it's a medical treatment. Yeah. And if it's not got any chance of success, then it's it's not on offer. And that it's it's possible to have that whole conversation from what are we going to do whilst you're in hospital to what might happen to what are we not going to do if it's worse from a cancer point of view to end of life care wishes and resuscitation all in one conversation you can do it yeah but the point of this uh podcast and the whole series of it is it's having frequent smaller conversations so i don't expect anybody to do all of this as part of a single conversation even though i call it a standard clock I'm simply saying, test what doors are open for further discussion. Test what patients will allow you to talk about. Test what they want to talk about on various subjects. And as long as you're clear in your documentation about we talked about what if things get worse, but we didn't then talk about if things get worse, where does the patient want to be, for example. Let it be clear in the notes where you've got up to, because others may come back and then say, oh, I can see you had a conversation with my colleague. Can we revisit that? Or if you're parking somebody into hospital that you think actually this person's really unwell and the likelihood is that they're going to deteriorate really very quickly, then once you've tested to see what doors are open or closed, it's important to leave somebody with a message that there may be further difficult conversations so that's another one that i very commonly do where it's too much to have that whole conversation in one i can say something along the lines of well i can see that these are new ideas and new questions to you and you don't have answers now but it may be that if things deteriorate we will need to talk again so we may need to come back and have a difficult conversation at that point I mean, so, yeah, that's. I think that's really interesting. So, so I think from what I'm what I'm hearing is that we can break the conversation down into a scenario, two scenarios potentially when the patient comes in. So, you know, the the fixable, non-fixable conversation is a is a nice way of sort of delineating down where we might go depending on things. And then I think the other the other thing that's really um, interesting and and I I now use more than I probably ever have before is this has been a bit of a challenging conversation but it's likely that we're going to need to have another difficult conversation in the fairly near future is something that I've not I've not probably used until we started doing this course and I do use it quite a lot now because I think it's 
it's not overloading because I think sometimes we feel under intense amount of pressure to get to the point that you've mm. wanted to discuss but actually it's sort of saying we're going to leave it there you can have some time to think but we haven't quite finished the conversation and where this is going and I think that's incredibly helpful because then when you go back to them you can pick it up and said you know you know you know we said we were probably going to have to have another difficult conversation well now, now is that time um, and that just gives you a nice segue in without shocking or unsettling them because you've already sort of laid the groundwork I think the other thing is we were saying it's you know, short sort of small small doses of things we don't have to leave a long period of time for those things I think sometimes particularly when we talk to our junior doctors about doing this and they're always concerned that well you know I've seen them on call and then I'm I'm going off call and I may never I may not see them again for three days or or if ever and I think, you know, when we say they need some digestion time, actually, we quite commonly will go and clock a patient in. Mm. And then as part of our standard process, we'll then take a consultant back, you know, a consultant will go back and do a post-take ward round. Well, actually, that's a really good option for you then to, for then your consultant to do the post-take ward to pick up on some of those themes. To say, you know, I know you had a conversation earlier. How do you feel about those things? Have you got any reflections or any questions about what was discussed? And then you can start picking up those themes. I think the other thing that's really interesting about the approach of, you know, what can I fix, what can't I fix, is it it automatically removes the feeling of something being taken away. Because I think sometimes when we're having these conversations about and it's and about escalation of care particularly, whatever that is too, whether that's to, you know, inotropes but nothing more, or to ventilation but nothing more, or high flow on the wards but nothing more, um, or all the way up to full organ support and multi-organ support. So I think that's the thing where we'll discuss this probably a little bit more detail a little bit later on. But essentially, that feels like something that when we say isn't feasible, depending on how we phrase it, can feel like it's been something that's been taken away as an option. Whereas actually, when we're talking about things we can and can't fix, if we can't fix something, then it's never an option because it's not going to do anything. So I think, you know, that that bereftness that patients sometimes feel when we're saying we're not going to do something Actually, by reframing as it's, there's no point. And actually what you end up is mm. in a situation where you deteriorate and die in a situation you don't want. Actually, it takes the the barbedness out of it, I think. I think it makes it more settled and more calm and less um, upfront and, and sort of feelingless. I think, you know, those things, those sort of easy sort of, hints and things that you can put in place just diffuses the conversation when you're starting to have those things that we really always seal ourselves for but but if you've already done the groundwork it becomes the next natural bit to get to and i think it's really important to to put it in the context of if you've established what the patient's wishes would be if they're getting worse from something that can't be fixed then how your treatment helps them to achieve any goals that they've shared with you. You know, yeah. this isn't a conversation of we're not going to do. Mm-hmm. This is a conversation of you've told me it's important to get you home if there's nothing more we can do for you. Yeah. So that is what we will do. But in order to make that happen, these are some of the decisions and some of the conversations we need to have to make sure that can happen in a timely manner and these are the kind of things that we could do to support you in the community at home and I just need to make sure that that's okay with you before I make that happen so it's making sure that you know from your patient what 
is important in different circumstances that then enables you to do what they want you to do. Yeah. And have your conversations in Mm. the framework of this is me trying to achieve what we can for you in this situation, acknowledging that there are things that we can't fix. Mm. And I think there's there's two things there, isn't it? One is about the fact that the default position is that people would want us to give active treatment. So, you know, for example, somebody who's got a recurrent abscess who they get better on antibiotics, but the minute you take them off antibiotics, they get worse again. Well, actually, there's a conversation there about whether this roundabout of ongoing antimicrobials off antimicrobials is the right thing for them. And actually, do we accept, and I've certainly had a quite a number of patients over the years where we sort of reach that that is the conclusion and then the conversation is do you want to stay here and me carry on giving you antibiotics which will will prolong your life but it'll prolong your life in hospital or do we want to look at other options or in fact do we want to say the next time this happens that actually we we're not going to keep you in hospital for antibiotics and actually your preference is to be at home albeit for a short period of time mm-hmm. and i think that's that's the opportunity in some ways for us to start having those conversations of you know how far you know modern medicine can take us quite a long way but it is sometimes just a holding pattern that we can we sometimes you can quite accidentally find yourself in that situation where you sort of got a patient who came in quite acutely and they've settled into this and, and you find them and you just think well is this what they want if this is going to be the ongoing revolve for the net for the, sort of the rest of their their life so i think there's something about the opportunity of of exploring active treatment if it becomes a rotating process mm. But also, I think certainly you and I, Dan, have spoken a lot about the fact that a presentation to an acute setting, sometimes it's not necessarily realised by the patient what that means. And sometimes it doesn't. It, it means that there's a change, but that they'll get better and we'll get them home. Sometimes some people will have made an advanced care plan that says, I don't want to come into hospital if I'm yeah. dying. But actually, they don't necessarily realise that that is, in fact, what's happening because there's nobody sat at home going, oh, this, this means that you're dying. Yeah. And so they'll come in. So actually, some of the question about can we can we make sure we're we're doing the right thing? Do we do is the right thing to admit somebody? Is that what they want? If that is in fact where they're yeah. at, what do these what do these presentations mean? If we don't have the conversation or give the patient the opportunity to have that conversation, we'll never know. Yeah. We'll just admit them for whatever it is, and they'll get sort of embedded within the hospital cycle, which for some patients is entirely appropriate. Yeah, but for some, they just literally don't realise that's what's happening. And by us asking the question and sort of suggesting that that is in fact where we're at and things are deteriorating, they sort of have a bit of a light bulb moment. They go, oh, that's what I was been waiting for. This is what we've been talking about all that time. And the family have that as well, don't they? I think, and they're having a family member alongside them because they, a family member needs to go out there and hand over to the rest of the family because there's people waiting mm-hmm. for what's being said. And by having these conversations broken down like that, they can then relay it all to family. Rather, and the words they don't like, family that aren't there, they're not going to do these things because that gets everybody wild up. But it's how it's put across to the patient and then and family and relayed to the wider family generally calms things down. And, but also we've covered so much that then both sides start to understand each other's wishes and maybe how unwell they are because they haven't realised how unwell they are either at that point. Mm. So it kind of over, you know, so they're both learning things at the same time. But it's so it's a good standard clerking is a good thing. Depends how far we get, but like say it's um, 
you know, it, it's, it's useful for both family and the patient too, and the staff when they get to the ward because they can see the conversations that we've already had. Yeah. yeah. I, I think the other thing that we don't ask very much about, which is probably becoming more and more of a thing, is that that sort of set of questions or conversations that you have in your mind that you want to have at the end of your sort of clinical review is about advanced directives and and, mm. um, and lasting power of attorney because actually we don't I think it's it's not become standard practice outside of the palliative care setting yeah. to ask whether these things exist and more and more people have got advanced directives mm. and, and lasting power of attorney and have conveyed lasting power of attorney to, to their loved ones and actually that completely changes where things are up to and so do some of them will volunteer but some will go oh yeah no I signed something but that so I can ensure of something that's quite important, um, particularly about how we make decisions later on down the line. Yeah. So I think um, it's the opportunity. If you think about, you know, these are the things I'm going to ask about. So when I go, when I when I've clocked the patient, I've done all the clinical stuff. I know why they've come in. They've got ascites and anemia and possibly an infection, and I'm treating for that. But then the conversation about have you thought about the future and do you have an advanced care plan? You know, have you thought about what might happen if it's something fixable or non-fixable? Where are we up to in terms of what this means for you in terms of the fact that you're now coming to hospital with symptoms that you didn't have before? And has this does this signify a change? And then the conversation about have you got any legal things in place, such as lasting power attorney, I think just allows you to go through all of those question points. And it's and it's relatively easy and calm to do. And it's not it doesn't take a lot of time, but actually those simple questions will start those cogs turning and also gives you a huge amount of information. But if you get into the habit of doing it regularly and it becoming a standard clerking, actually you will do it with every patient and then you will get more comfortable in answering the questions. It will seem less foreign for the, the person receiving those questions because you're less awkward in delivering them. Yeah. And also it means you are streets ahead should you have to come back and say, well, this was obviously quite a, you know, we've covered a lot of ground here today. You know, we obviously we've, you're not very well and we're sorting that out, but it's been really good to talk about the other things, the other elements that we need to sort of stop think about. And it may mean that we have to come back and have a, another challenging or difficult conversation in the relatively near future. Just sets you up for your next, your next one and just de-stresses the whole process. Yeah. But you have asked the questions that you're meant to ask. And you can do it all with questions alone. You haven't yeah. got to say anything no. in terms of yeah. information delivery, yeah. giving bad news. If you are meeting that patient for the first time, you can get all of this by asking innocent questions. Yeah. And then leaving it with, a, well, from what you've told me, it may be that we need to have further difficult conversations if things change. Or... Patients may then want you to talk about what your thoughts are around what's appropriate and what, what decisions they should make and may want you to guide them to some of that. And that's fine as well. But the point of a clerking is to ask questions yeah. and get the patient's answers. Yeah. And therefore, it's reasonable to ask this whole spectrum of questions, not just about the symptoms and the medical yeah. stuff. No, and, I, and I suppose, you know, I was, it's interesting when I talk to patients about being on antidepressants, for example, they um, they get very very worried about about the fact that they they are and I say well you know if you had high blood pressure I would expect you to be on a, a blood pressure tablet and if you've got low mood I would expect you to be on a tablet for your mood yeah. because it's all part of physiology and I think it's the same thing it's sort of normalizing those questions because actually 
as their healthcare team, you actually need to know these things about them. Mm. But it's not threatening and if and, and you don't have to push it if they don't no. want to talk about it that's fine but you've given the opportunity and I think we don't really view acute admission as an opportunity but we perhaps should be viewing it as an opportunity and I think you know certainly again when we have these conversations with our more sort of emergency medicine acute medicine colleagues I think they, they sometimes feel that all of this should have been done already mm. but sometimes you need and it's not always and don't get me wrong you know, back to the acute oncology you know outpatient setting you know there are things absolutely that we can do in the outpatient setting but I think because an admission or at least an attendance is the beginning of a recognition that things are changing we should view it as an opportunity to start planting some of these seeds because they don't feel so well and they can see that they're not as well and that means that they may have a, a different take on things than they would do when they feel completely well or relatively well in the outpatient setting. Okay. So yeah, it's quite a, it's quite an interesting thing, isn't it? In it terms is. of how you sort of use it. I think that we necessarily use it as an opportunity normally. Um, but there we go. But we should we should sort of maybe reflect on it and be I will sort of invite you all to to reflect on whether you use an acute admission is an opportunity and maybe if you haven't maybe next time you clerk someone in to think about it yeah. as such i think you can use a lot you can do a lot with it you can ask questions as i say from that position of innocence and you can feed back to people about where they are so some people even as you say people that have thought through in detail what they want particularly people that have got clear wishes for what they want at the end of life they still need somebody there to reflect with them when that time is, because yeah. people don't instinctively know. No, no, absolutely. Because they've been unwell so many times previously and recovered from things. They just don't know when that time is, you know. No, and, and actually, in fairness, we're pretty terrible. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, not, it's, not, it's not an easy thing to know. No, no. Um, I'm so dreadful at prognosticating. Well, <laughs> we know. <laughs> So I always have the conversations way in advance yeah. because I will miss it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But actually, I think, you know, it's and also it's scary. It's a scary time to even begin to think that that's where you've got to. So sometimes they need a, a bit of support in understanding that's where they, they are. In fact, oh, so yeah, it's um, it's 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 a new way of thinking about people coming in acutely. Um, and again, it's always that time factor, but it really doesn't take very long. And it's it's literally two or three questions at the end, which when normalised actually don't upset the barrel don't upset the patient everyone you know it's just it's literally just exploring where things are up to so we can build on it fantastic right well I hope that's given you all food for thought um, and we'll be back with our with our next podcast and um, for you to take it in your in your leisure <laughs>